Why is this sound? Because actually, thanks to circulating tumor DNA, we highly reduce the percentage of patients that are actually exposed to a chemotherapy adjuvant regimen. So we want to understand whether treating less patients, but treating these patients probably more heavily, because we know that they do have a micrometastatic disease, a molecularly metastatic disease, is able to um, not uh, affect the clinical outcome when compared with the traditional strategy. Hey there, I'm Luca Fusarbassini, I'm a PhD student in computational biology at EPFL in Switzerland, and you're listening to a biotech futurist. The biotech futurist aims to foster deep understanding and discussion about exciting hot topics in biotech, but I want to say from the beginning that it is by no means rigorous in teaching the subject. And for the sake of outreach, sometimes we need generalizations that, of course, simplify the reality of the science behind what we're discussing. But I can say that my guests and I do our best to be clear and to go in depth. You can imagine to be out with me and my expert guest for a friendly conversation to get a general understanding and more curiosity, having fun as much as I've had recording this podcast. This podcast has no sponsors and any reference is not meant to support any commercial activity. This podcast is a solo effort, so if you wish to support me, I'd be grateful if you followed the Biotech Futurist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform and share it with your friends. With that said, I am excited to move on to today's conversation at the Biotech Futurist. Liquid biopsy in oncology. As the topic is huge, I thought to first discuss in 10 minutes some introductory notions before interviewing our guest, Chiara Cremolini, so to make sure that we are on the same page as her and do the most of our conversation. Let's start from uh, what uh, we'd like to have ideally in cancer screenings. We'd love to have a technique which is uh, applicable on the general public on a monthly basis, let's say, and this general public is typically asymptomatic, so the public that doesn't think they have a cancer. So to detect cancers at an early phase where several cancers are treatable efficiently. So this technique should be very sensitive, right? Because we want to find cancers as soon as they arise, so treat them immediately. And this technique should be minimally invasive, because if we want the general public to undergo such a screening on a very frequent basis, and this is fundamental to detect cancers as early as we can, then it should be minimally invasive. And hopefully this technique should be applicable to a broad range of very different tumors. And here, the key biological observation is that cells from uh, a big portion of tissues do release some of their contents in the interstitial fluid, so a fluid that is between cells. And this happens uh, following necrosis or apoptosis, which are totally healthy processes that happen in my body and your body and in everybody every day. And uh, this cellular content uh, in the end uh, um, ends up uh, in the bloodstream. So tumors also release some of their contents in the bloodstream. So blood represents a sort of faded picture of processes that happen elsewhere in the body because several tissues do release their contents in the blood. And the blood is key because it's so easily accessible by a simple blood draw. 
and potentially it is informative about tumors happening in every site of a body or at least most sites of our body, much well before they are detectable by conventional methodics. And this is already showing very impressive results in animal models. I think this is really just incredible. So tissues do release DNA, RNA, intact cells, proteins and exosomes in the bloodstream. Liquid biopsy refers to the analysis of these materials to search for diagnostic signals of tumors, particularly in the form of cell-free DNA, CFDNA, if you read some publication. Why DNA and not RNA? Because DNA is typically more stable than RNA in the blood, so it's just easier to detect, so it's reasonable that techniques start from what is feasible and then maybe evolve to harder problems. Well, to be honest, to, I mean, to be complete, also other body fluids can be used for liquid biopsy, and in theory liquid biopsy could be used also to detect other forms of diseases. But of course, cancers, uh, as they release, a relatively good amount of uh, um, contents uh, in the bloodstream and I mean are, they are a, a medical emergence and uh, I mean they, they just represent the good point to start to develop liquid biopsy but who knows maybe in a lot of years uh, we'll see liquid biopsy as a routinary technique for many more diseases and of course we are already using blood uh, we, we've been using blood for so many years uh, as a society to detect several key aspects of our health um, to, to delve a little bit deeper into liquid biopsy, we must say that circulating um, DNA in the blood has a very short half-life and other um, contents that cell release in the bloodstream have possibly an even shorter half-life. So for DNA that's around one hour or a little bit less. So the key observation here first is that patients with cancers have uh, overall higher levels of uh, circulating uh, DNA compared to people uh, who are, let's say, healthy, I mean, who don't have cancers yet. However, circulating tumor DNA, so ctDNA, is only a fraction of cfDNA, and that fraction is highly variable between different cancers and between different patients. It can range from 0.1% of the total uh, cfDNA to around 90%, according to recent reports, and that is extremely variable also between patients with the same type of tumor, adding to the complexity of developing such techniques. Anyway, I think it is crucial to keep in mind that there's a strong background of DNA coming from non-tumorigenic cells, right? So that makes it harder to detect tumor-specific DNA in the middle of non-cancerous cell DNA. So what could be some applications of liquid biopsy? for cancers. First, diagnosis and molecular profiling. Well, not only to identify the presence of a tumor, let's say in the long run, of course, this is still very preliminary. There are already applications in the clinic that are changing patients' lives, but uh, to reach a broader scale, they need much more understanding. So not only to identify tumors, but also to identify which mutations are present in that tumor, and that can really give hints about uh, the disease. However, we should reason about uh, I mean, this is case specific, we should reason uh, case by case about uh, what the mutational profile that we retrieve from blood can reproduce effectively the mutational profile that we see in the tumor. Isn't that that maybe some tumors uh, 
uh, do release specifically some contents but not others or some are more stable and others are degraded in the blood you know it's complicated but for the moment the answer seems to be generally yes so generally uh, the tumor DNA that we detect in the blood well reproduces the tumor DNA that we can retrieve with a conventional biopsy however this is not the case or at least it seems so with current techniques uh, for patients uh, who have very low levels of circulating tumor DNA. Then analyzing the molecular profile uh, is also interesting because we not only detect tumors, uh, but we can follow the course of the disease uh, of a tumor without the need of an invasive biopsy, especially for those tumors uh, for which a biopsy is uh, dangerous for a patient to do. And then a further advantage is that a liquid biopsy compared to a conventional biopsy is to capture heterogeneity because it can reveal mutations that maybe are hidden to a conventional biopsy because they are well inside the tumor you know tumors are a mass they have an external part and an internal part and that internal part is harder to access but maybe it is the key to understand the disease and the place where very dangerous mutations arise but they fail to be captured by a conventional biopsy so potentially in the long run liquid biopsy can also help in this sense. Also, liquid biopsy can help to detect residual disease after surgical resection. And this is important, so those patients who have some residual disease can immediately undergo chemotherapy, and this has already been shown to increase overall survival, but at the same time also to spare useless therapeutics, I mean chemotherapy, which is kind of dangerous in some sense, to patients who are already healed from the tumor as you can't detect any more circulating tumor DNA. And there are already good clinical trials showing that at least in some specific cases this is possible. Of course, as I've said, we are really at the beginning of this page of medical history and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in the next few years in this page. So of course, before becoming a technique that, I mean, really reaches uh, the, the big public, we need uh, two things. They are very common, sensibility and specificity. First, sensibility, because uh, if we don't get enough sensibility, we, we may really don't, not detect uh, patients uh, who still have uh, metastasis or residual disease. And uh, these patients uh, could uh, not receive uh, chemotherapy, thus uh, uh, avoiding uh, an important support to their disease. But at the same time, we must uh, balance sensibility with specificity because the great risk is overdiagnosis. So if we tell too many patients that they either have a first cancer or they still have cancer after surgical resection, then we really put several people uh, in a difficult situation because if that cancer is just a false positive of the technique, then they may undergo so many um, psychologically stressing screenings that are really no purpose. Also, liquid biopsy can be useful to follow clonal dynamics, a response to drugs, um, the emergence of resistance to specific drugs, and potentially reveal uh, actionable mutations. What I mean by actionable mutations uh, is that uh, tumors, uh, as you know, evolve. So they change their DNA over time, and uh, um, cells that are particularly aggressive uh, overall uh, dominate uh, because they reproduce better and more quickly and become uh, the majority of the mass over time. 
and some of the mutations that arise in this process are better actionable, meaning that they can guide therapeutic decisions because we have drugs to control cancers that express those specific mutations. Also, it's interesting to note that the um, overall level of ctDNA for a single patient, I mean, not for the general population, but conditioned to a single patient, typically follows well the tumoral mass. So if you have a bigger tumor, then you have more circulating tumor DNA, given that it's you. Also, the short half-life of CFDNA can play a tour favor, because imagine that you administer a drug therapeutic to a patient, then the effects of this therapeutic should become almost immediately detectable in the blood, because, you know, if the therapeutic is working well, then uh, the DNA released from the tumor that you can retrieve in the blood is uh, um, exchanged, uh, as I said, like every hour. So you can detect uh, in the range of hours if the DNA that is released uh, in the blood is changing. And some studies are already reporting great predictive capacities of treatment response. It's also interesting to note that the blood um, represents a sort of confluence road, right? So if, you, if we become uh, sensitive enough to detect this uh, circulating tumor DNA, then we may even uh, reveal the molecular signatures of different metastases. So once you detect that there are some metastases from a blood biopsy, then you can really look in the specific body district. Of course, this is far away in history, but possibly not so far away. And this technique is so, so promising. So yeah, we can also estimate the diversity of metastases. I think I've said a lot of curious things and I'm looking forward to discussing more and more with Chiara Cremolini. So let's just move on to today's conversation with Chiara. It's nice to be here on the podcast again, today with Professor Chiara Cremolini. Chiara is an associate professor in medical oncology at the University of Pisa, where she performs translational research. She's deeply knowledgeable about immune oncology. I've been lucky to follow a course of hers during my degree. Chiara is devoted to the care of patients with malignant gastrointestinal cancers, and she has authored more than 200 peer-reviewed scientific publications. Well, Chiara, may you summarize your story, passions, scientific interests, career, and profession for us in, say, five minutes? Sure, Luca, first of all, uh, thank you for involving me in this interesting project. And uh, yes, I'm a medical oncologist, so I'm a clinician, I'm uh, a medical doctor. I studied in Pisa and then uh, I um, attended my residency school in medical oncology at the same university. Then I spent some um, time abroad, in particular in the US, the University of South California in Los Angeles. And uh, I had the chance to connect with the several uh, experts in the field of translational research in uh, medical oncology and especially in colorectal cancer that uh, has always been my main interest in terms of clinical and translational research. Nowadays, I work at the University of Pisa and um, I am uh, very lucky to be in touch with um, a lot of uh, brilliant uh, students with many ideas in the field of cancer. And uh, I try to improve the daily care of our patients through the development of clinical trials, which is my first interest, but also through implementing some news and novelties and technologies in the field of translational research. And I guess we are here exactly for this reason to 
think together and uh, to deepen the potential role of liquid biopsy in the field of uh, colorectal cancer. So I'm basically a medical doctor, a physician, but I'm very interested in research, both at the clinical and the translation. Wonderful. So I guess I can ask, uh, can you give us uh, a glimpse of uh, what your typical recent week looks like? What have you done this week, for instance, both in the clinic and in research settings? Well, I mainly spend uh, three or four half days in the clinic taking care of cancer patients. I am mainly committed to the treatment of patients affected by gastrointestinal malignancies, as you mentioned, and especially affected by colorectal cancer. This is a really an energy-consuming task because um, it's not only uh, the problem and the role of speaking with people, of taking decisions, but also all around there is a world of other activities that uh, you um, should be uh, in charge of in order to ensure that these uh, patients do receive the best assistance that you can give them. And then uh, I'm a teacher at the university, so I basically have uh, two half days per week Uh, where I try to deliver my lessons at different levels, medical students, fellows in uh, medical oncologists, and uh, I am also the tutor of some PhD students, so I have to follow their progress in uh, their fields of research. And finally, all the other, the rest of my time is at the laptop to create, connect, and uh, continue contribution with other uh, scientists, um, both in Italy and in most cases abroad, to try to continue these um, research projects in the field of gastrointestinal malignancies. Uh, I am the president of uh, a foundation that is called the GONO Foundation, and uh, it's a group oncologico del nord-ovest, but it is not, not limited to the northwest part of Italy but there are uh, around 70 oncology units uh, taking part to our projects. And uh, through this uh, uh, foundation, that is an onlus foundation, no-profit uh, academic foundation, I uh, coordinate research projects throughout Italy. This is uh, a very important uh, role. I'm proud of that, but it's also very um, time and energy consuming because uh, you have to daily be in touch with a lot of people to try to solve their problems and to try to improve the design of clinical trials that you have in your mind and find money and the financial resources to conduct these projects. Fantastic insights, thank you. So Chiara, I'm curious to ask, uh, what's the current state of your research? What do you feel most excited about? Um, as I mentioned, I'm a clinician, so I work in the hospital and not in a lab, but I'm deeply in touch with uh, several labs to uh, do these research projects. Nowadays, one of my most relevant fields of research in terms of uh, translational findings is uh, um, the role of liquid biopsy. And uh, uh, I try to um, implement this technology in different steps of the patient's journey through the design of clinical trials and also collecting some retrospective evidence. I have already worked a little bit on that, but I have uh, huge programs and a huge projects currently ongoing in this field. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in the next few years. 
So I think now it's time for a quick introduction to some concepts in liquid biopsy and I mean I've already introduced some of them in the introductory episode of this week but I'd be happy to discuss some more with Chiara. So I think a good starting point to do so is a review from Chiara and her collaborators entitled Circulating Tumor DNA Analysis in Colorectal Cancer from Daily Dream to Reality. Um, so I have a few questions for you. First would be, you know, ctDNA um, can be compared with tissue biopsy level tumor DNA for us profiling. So what are the current studies, their limitations, uh, the advantages that ctDNA, I mean liquid biopsy based on circulating tumor DNA may have compared to classical technologies and which are the technical requirements to go indeed from dream to reality? Very good question. Okay, so first of all, I think that uh, we should be aware that uh, liquid biopsy is not only circulating tumor DNA because from the blood you can extract a lot of other things, RNA, proteins, circulating tumor cells. My interest is mainly related to circulating tumor DNA because in colorectal cancer, this is the vast majority of information that we collect and that may be actual informative by clinical point of view. Uh, in a liquid biopsy. So the first point that you have mentioned is that we could try to use a simple blood drone instead of uh, a common, a traditional tissue biopsy to deliver and achieve all the information we need in terms of molecular characterization that is important and nowadays I would say indispensable, absolutely needed to inform the treatment journey of each individual patient. In other words, we are quite lucky today because we have a lot of treatment options for colorectal cancer patients in the metastatic phase. And uh, we need to target our treatment options uh, as better as possible through molecular characterization. Having a clear idea of the molecular landscape of the tumor may help us to personalize the treatment as better as better as possible in our um, daily decision-making process. Clearly having the opportunity to deliver this information that are important in the metastatic setting from the ctDNA circulating tumor DNA that is shedded by cancer cells instead of having a clearly more invasive tissue biopsy may be a very attractive option for medical oncologists. However, we should also consider that not all tumors are actually shedding and not all metastatic sites do shed circulating tumor DNA at the same level and in the same way. For example, lung metastasis and the peritoneal metastasis or local-regional recurrences of colorectal cancer do shed a lower extent of circulating tumor DNA a lower amount, if any, uh, than other metastatic sites, including, for example, liver metastasis. So clearly, if we have not only to detect a circulating tumor DNA, which is uh, generally quite easy in the metastatic setting with the exception of these uh, metastatic sites that are more problematic, uh, but we also need to perform a qualitative evaluation of this DNA in terms of molecular alterations, we need a sensitive technique and probably we do not need such an extensive panel because we know which markers are needed 
which molecular predictors are actually useful to inform our treatment choices. And as a consequence, we can use a very deep technology, for example, a digital PCR, to sequence the individual genes that are deemed of interest for our uh, aim. Generally, in colorectal cancer, it is not so difficult, differently than other tumors, for example, no small cell lung cancer, it's much more difficult to have a good representative amount of tumor tissues. In that case, the use of liquid biopsy is much more convenient than in colorectal. The great, in my opinion, advantage of having a liquid biopsy instead of the tissue biopsy, independently of the invasiveness of the procedure, that is not a real problem in colorectal, is that you can overcome a huge problem in colorectal, which is the heterogeneity of the disease. We have a lot of evidence that the individual metastasis arising from one tumor in one individual patient are different by molecular point of view. So that if I pick up only a small piece, a biopsy of one single metastatic lesion, I will not have a complete overview of the tumor molecular landscape, while circulating tumor DNA may be much more representative because all the different metastatic sites do shed their DNA in the blood. And as a consequence, they may somehow overcome this problem of having a good picture of the heterogeneity of the molecular landscape of each individual colorectal cancer. Wonderful. So to sum up, uh, of blood is a collection point uh, where the material from different sides of a body all converge. So you can at least ideally monitor more than one metastasis through the blood and have a complete glimpse of what happens at distal sites in the body. So I have a couple of technical questions about what you were saying, but the first would be, uh, what is digital PCR? Can you explain for us? And the second is, uh, uh, what are the technical advances that you foresee in the next few years to make this ubiquitary for um, a number of different cancers possibly? Well, in terms of a potential technologies that may be applied to this concept of a liquid biopsy, we have a, um, a kind of inverse relationship between the broadness of the coverage of these sequencing methods in terms of how many genes, how many base pairs you can cover in an individual run. Uh, and uh, this is uh, uh, an inverse relation with the deepness of the analysis. I mean the sensitivity. So as a highest is the number of genes that you want to evaluate. Basically, as lowest is the sensitivity of the technique. And highest is the mutant allele fraction that is needed to find that molecular alteration in circulating tumor DNA. So it's a matter of what you are searching, what you are looking for. If you already know which is the alteration that you want to detect, it is not needed to sequence a large number of genes. You just need to sequence that gene and to offer a technique with a high deepness, with a high sensitivity. Because in this way, you can ensure to have clearly a very informative data about that individual gene. On the other side, if you do not know what you are looking for, then you have 
to expand the magnitude of the number of genes that you want to um, analyze at once. And in this case, probably you will have to slightly reduce the sensitivity of your technique. Digital PCR is a, a technique where you need to know what you are looking for because you choose one, two, three genes. It's a run for an individual gene or a small packages of genes. And then it offers deep coverage of these molecular alterations. Uh, it's a, basically a PCR, but the chemical reaction allows to achieve a highest deepness and a highest sensitivity, thus allowing to discover also small amounts of mutant allele fractions. In the future, definitely the dream will be to have a technique able to analyze at once a lot of genes with a very high sensitivity, which will be clearly very welcome. And uh, probably the answer will be to focus not only on uh, uh, genomic alterations, so circulating tumor DNA, alterations, mutations, uh, amplifications, and so on, but also on methylation markers that are clearly different between tumor cells and normal cells. And these methylation markers may enrich the sensitivity of these technologies. Because now we are um, addressing one of the easiest potential applications of liquid biopsy, which is the tumor is there and you want to characterize this tumor. But in the future, I guess that the liquid biopsy will be a revolution in those cases where the tumor is not there anymore, probably, such as in the case of a resected primary tumor, or in the case when you do not know whether the tumor is there, and so all the implications of screening procedures that thanks to liquid biopsy may in the future, which is not tomorrow, but in some years probably, promises to become much more effective and much less invasive than current procedures. Nice explanation. Thank you so much. Uh, I guess you said that by combining uh, the sequencing uh, or the detection of mutated and methylated ctDNA, one could increase the sensitivity of ctDNA detection assays. Why is this the case? What is the biological reason for this observation? Well, the biological reason is that uh, if you are able to contemporarily attack the tumor, also in terms of discovery from different points of view, then probably you will have a more sensitive technique. So um, another advantage that may be provided by this uh, issue, this topic of uh, methylation markers, is that these methylation markers probably are the same in different tumor types. And so this offers a large amount of improvement and a real a landscape of improvement in the field of screening. I mean, if I do not know what I am searching for, a colon cancer, a lung cancer, but I know that these methylation markers are much more represented in tumors, than in normal cells, then having a technology able to detect these markers may clearly uh, increase the opportunity to find out these tumor cells independently of the site of origin. And I think that this may be a useful and interesting application for the next future. 
Nice, so basically the convergence of multiple information sources should enable higher sensitivity. Um, I guess now it's time to ask you another application that you discuss in the review that I just mentioned, that is the possibility to use circulating tumor DNA to estimate the prognosis and detect minimal residual disease. So what's the state of the art for this application and what are the first clinical applications? Why can such a technology help also stratify clinical trials? Actually, I think that this is one of the most interesting fields in uh, uh, the topic of liquid biopsy uh, because nowadays, uh, as uh, physicians, as clinicians, we do have uh, some uh, uh, important problems. One of these problems is that when I am in front of uh, a resected colorectal cancer patient, that is a patient that uh, has recently undergone a surgical procedure to remove a colorectal cancer. And this patient uh, comes to my clinic with an histopathologic report showing that uh, it was a stage three colon cancer. This means uh, no metastasis, no evident metastasis at the CT scan and uh, all the clinical staging examinations. Uh, and in the pathological report, the involvement of at least one lymph node. This means that from the tumor, cancer cells were trying to go somewhere else through the lymphatic system. And we are now able to find them in at least one lymph node. This stage three is a clear indication to offer and to recommend this patient in adjuvant therapy. That is a combination of two cytotoxic agents for a treatment duration of three to six months. This treatment is clearly characterized by some potential adverse events that clearly may somehow impair the quality of life of these patients. But the most important thing is that out of 100 patients with a stage 3 colon cancer where adjuvant chemotherapy is recommended according to all the national and international guidelines, 50 of these patients, the 50%, they are already cured by surgery. They do not need chemotherapy. Then there are around 20 to 25 that uh, will relapse independently of having received this adjuvant therapy, and the other 25 to 30 that are actually cured thanks to the use of the adjuvant chemotherapy following the surgical procedure. In other words, I am offering and administering chemotherapy to 100 patients, but only 25 of them, roughly, will definitely better uh, benefit from this treatment. For all the others, the treatment is completely useless because they are already cured by surgery or because they, well, they will still develop disease relapse independently of my adjuvant therapy. So I think that a very smart way to solve this problem is to identify those patients that actually need the adjuvant therapy. And the liquid biopsy promises to do a useful tool to do that. Because in the case of a positive circulating tumor DNA following the surgical procedure, then these patients do have a micrometastatic disease that is molecularly micrometastatic, although I do not not see cancer cells in their 
radiologic examinations, but the tumor is there. And in this case, I probably have to hit hard, even harder than the traditional adjuvant chemotherapy in order to offer these patients a possibility of being cured by their tumor. On the other side, if circulating tumor DNA is negative, then in this case, probably any adjuvant therapy will not be needed because these patients do have a very good prognosis and the added value of the post-operative treatment is probably minimal, if any. Nowadays, which is the state of the art? This is a theory, much more than a demonstration. There are, a, let's say, next-generation clinical trials in the adjuvant setting of colorectal cancer that are currently ongoing worldwide. I will be in charge of con conducting one of these trials in Italy, thanks to the help of the Gono Foundation. And uh, uh, the question of my trial is, in the case of positive circulating tumor DNA, so the bad ones, do I need to intensify the chemotherapy backbone or should I still administer uh, a doublet of chemotherapy? Is a triplet of chemotherapy beneficial for these patients in terms of clearance of circulating tumor DNA? And so this is uh, the reason why I think that in the next future, this information may be very important to inform our treatment in the adjuvant setting. And if we prove this in colorectal, probably then this will apply also to other solid malignancies. Nice. Uh, you're touching a fundamental point, but uh, it's really the center of this podcast, which is the personalization of medicine. I mean, traditional approaches typically have treated uh, most patients uh, as if they were the same person with average um, conditions uh, because traditional um, techniques are to some extent macroscopic so the advent of uh, molecular technologies can really help boost um, suggestions tailored to a single patient and I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens in the next few years. So what you mentioned just now about the clinical trial that you and your colleagues are working on to establish leads me to the next question that is um, how can circulating tumor DNA be helpful to track tumor response and resistant to therapy. I guess this is something that you may want to do to test your hypothesis that you just mentioned. I think that uh, this is another potential field of application of uh, circulating tumor DNA, um, mainly in the setting of monitoring response to treatments. And this means both in the adjuvant setting where we do not have a disease to actually monitor because in the adjuvant setting, we presume that the patient is cured thanks to the surgery. We have no evident disease in the CT scan or in other radiologic examinations. And so we can monitor circulating tumor DNA if there is a circulating tumor DNA after the surgical procedure or the appearance of circulating tumor DNA at some point. But in this case, we actually do not have a lot of uh, clinical data supporting the role of monitoring of CTDNA across different stages, I mean, across different uh, CT scan evaluations as a, a good tool to inform our follow-up when compared with the traditional uh, follow-up that our patients undergo. On the other side, another important point uh, that you have touched, and I think it's really crucial, is the role of circulating tumor DNA in monitoring mechanisms of acquired resistance to targeted agents. 
We now have some targeted agents that we use in the metastatic setting. And in this case, uh, we can have an informative tool, which is liquid biopsy, to understand whether and when these treatments are not working anymore and why. Why? Because we know that uh, some intrinsic mechanisms of uh, resistance to targeted agents may appear at the time of acquired resistance. And so investigating the presence of these alterations at the time of disease progression may unveil the reason why, if these mechanisms were not present at the very beginning of the story, at the very beginning of the treatment, the point is why these uh, alterations are appearing and if they drive resistance to a treatment that was initially efficacious. In this case, how can we use this information? First of all, the presence of mechanisms of acquired resistance should prevent the reuse of the same treatment. I mean, if I know that the patient has become resistant because of the presence of RAS mutation with regard to anti-GFR agents, for example, and the RAS mutations are still there after some months, then in that case, it is perfectly useless to um, offer again an anti-GFR-based regimen. Or in another case, which is more in the future probably, having a mechanism of acquired resistance that is actionable itself may help informing subsequent treatment choices. I mean, if resistance to anti-GFRs is driven by metamplification and they do have a target a drug against MET amplification, I can use this information to use this treatment, this tailored treatment, to counteract the onset of acquired resistance. And I can inform the continuum of care of my patients by taking advantage of this kind of information. Clearly, the crucial point is to have these targetable alterations and to have these targeted drugs. Briefly, for the sake of completeness, can you define what is metamplification in depth, please? Uh, for example, metamplification, MET is a gene. Uh, it uh, uh, encodes for a growth fat, a receptor of a growth factor that is on the surface of tumor cells. In the case of a high number of genes, uh, of MET genes in the chromosomes, then this translates into a high expression of MET, of this uh, uh, receptor on the surface of tumor cells. And this is able to drive tumor progression because uh, these cancer cells will have an advantage as compared to those that do not express these high levels of MET. And if I have a drug that is able to selectively inhibit MET on tumor cells, I may derive a clinical benefit for these patients. Wonderful. So I think we've just touched upon uh, one fundamental concept that is that we don't want to give patients some adjuvant chemotherapy or other potentially at least partially toxic agent in case they do not need it, but it's hard to decide who needs it and who does not. So this same idea applies to one of the two clinical trials that I'd be happy to discuss with Chiara. I mean, she suggested me to discuss these two clinical trials as a center of today's podcast episode. So I want to recognize that. And it also gives us the opportunity to discuss on this podcast some of the 
key concepts in clinical trials, especially in oncology. So uh, the um, trial I'm dealing with is the dynamic clinical trial. And this clinical trial uh, um, is uh, investigating the role of uh, ctDNA guidance for clinical choice to use or not use adjuvant chemotherapy, as we were just saying. Um, this trial is on stage second, stage two, colon cancer. And in this setting, circulating tumor DNA after surgery is known to be a predictor of very poor recurrence uh, free survival whereas its absence is known to be a predictor of low risk of recurrence. So the question that this clinical trial is asking is, can ctDNA guide the clinical choice to use adjuvant chemotherapy without compromising uh, the risk of recurrence? And uh, basically the null hypothesis we're testing is the dis difference between circulating tumor DNA guided management versus standard clinical care management based on you know, um, standard clinical assessment uh, to decide if these patients need to take adjuvant chemotherapy or not. So could you please, Chiara, describe for us uh, the fundamental insights behind uh, the design of this clinical trial, the key concepts of an oncology clinical trial such as phase one and uh, its key results, please? Uh, well, the dynamic trial is a very interesting academic study that is the first uh, trial that has actually clinical results available of this uh, next generation of uh, clinical trials informed by liquid vibes and in particular by circulating tumor DNA for the detection of the minimal residual disease in the field of colorectal cancer. Here we are in front of stage two colorectal cancer patients where the indication to administer an adjuvant um, chemotherapy is uh, less pressing and less clear than in stage three. So it's a, a gray area where it would be very important to have a new tool to evaluate whether to administer or not a chemotherapy regimen and potentially which chemotherapy regimen. So um, this trial had a non-inferiority hypothesis. So um, the objective is, was not to demonstrate that using the information provided by circulating tumor DNA improves the outcome of our patients, but that it does not harm patients. Why is this sound? Because actually, thanks to circulating tumor DNA, we highly reduce the percentage of patients that are actually exposed to a chemotherapy adjuvant regimen. So we want to understand whether treating less patients, but treating these patients probably more heavily, because we know that they do have a micrometastatic disease, a molecularly metastatic disease, is able to um, not uh, affect the clinical outcome when compared with the traditional strategy. So the idea is to evaluate whether reducing the burden of adverse events, that is reducing the percentage of patients that do receive a chemotherapy regimen, is not harmful in terms of disease-free survival, which is the primary endpoint of this study. And actually, the answer is yes, because the non-inferiority is demonstrated. A clearly lower percentage of patients in the ctDNA-informed arm received the adjuvant therapy, and the higher percentage of them received the combination chemotherapy because this was probably needed based on the positivity of circulating tumor DNA. Patients with ctDNA positive that were treated had, however, a worse prognosis 
than patients ctDNA negative that did not receive any adjuvant therapy. And this, in my opinion, opens the way to the need to further intensify and improve the adjuvant therapy for ctDNA positive ones, while it opens the way to really sparing the treatment in ctDNA negative that do have a very good prognosis. The only caveat about this second point of my hypothesis is that histopathological factors that are associated with poor prognosis, including, for example, a T4 stage, meaning that the deepness of the invasion of the colon wall by the tumor is higher than in the T3 stage. So these T4 tumors still perform worse, although in the presence of ctDNA negative. So these factors still have a weight. We cannot disregard completely the traditional histopathological factors. And this is, in my opinion, a, it highlights the need to probably increase the sensitivity of the technique in order to make really circulating tumor DNA a major driver independently of all of the other histopathological factors. So the results of the dynamic trial are not today immediately translated in the daily clinical practice, but are a very important proof of concept that this reasoning around the ctDNA in the detection of the minimal residual disease actually works and should be further investigated in other randomized clinical trials that are currently ongoing. Very nice. Thank you for explaining. So I'd be happy to now ask you a few questions regarding the structure of this clinical trial. So my first question would be, um, I read that this clinical trial is a phase two multicenter block randomized controlled clinical trial. Can you explain for us what this means? Well, um, a phase two trial is uh, an intermediate level between a phase one and the phase three. In the phase one, we only aim generally at understanding which is the right dose of a certain drug to be administered to a patient. In the phase three, we compare this drug with the standard of care. And if positive, the new drugs comes into the market and is offered based clearly on the results of the trial to the vast majority. Now we are in phase two. It means that uh, the sample size is not so large to consider this trial as a phase three, which is a definitive trial, but it still provides important information because it's a phase two, but it's randomized. It means that we have a control arm that in this case is the traditional approach to the adjuvant treatment that is a ctDNA uninformed versus a new strategy, which is a ctDNA informed choice of the adjuvant therapy. This is an academic trial. It means that there is not a, an industry partner that is paying for conducting the trial. Actually, there are no new drugs or drugs with potential commercial interests embedded in this trial because you know that chemotherapy is nowadays very cheap and there is no patent related to the use of these drugs that are uh, commonly available in the daily clinical practice. And um, it's a, a, a multicentric study. Again, this somehow increases the reliability as compared to monocentric experiences, because in a monocentric experience that is mainly conducted in a high volume centers with high 
research activity. Sometimes these results are difficult to be translated in the daily clinical practice of hundreds of hospitals with many less facilities than referral centers. So having a multicentric trial is always a, um, something like a proof of feasibility in, in a larger community. Wonderful. Um, I have another couple of questions regarding the trial structure. The first is, the primary endpoint for this study was the recurrence-free survival at two years, and I've also read in the study that they uh, followed up patients for five years, monitoring carcinoembryotic antigen and contrast-enhanced CT. So I'm curious about uh, the choice of a time frame. So why is this recurrence-free survival at two years, and why monitoring for five years? Can you describe also for us what are the carcinoembryonic antigen and the contrast in CT or other measures that may be used to follow up patients? And also relating to this, how can one choose on the correct sample size choice for uh, such a trial? Well, um, that's a lot, a lot of questions. Of questions. <laughs> yes, first of all, uh, with regard to the time frame, the three years relapse free survival has been demonstrated as a good surrogate of long-term evaluation in terms of both relapse-free survival and overall survival. In other words, it allows achieving reliable information in terms of the ultimate goal of our treatments, which is overall survival in a shorter time frame, which is only three years. However, we know that disease relapse may happen in the first three years, which is very common, which is most common but also in the uh, uh, subsequent years, and especially within the fifth year. This is the reason why patients were still followed at least until five years after the resection of their primary tumor. And this follow-up is generally made by the combination of blood examinations, including tumor markers, and the CEA is the most reliable tumor marker for colorectal cancer and by means of a contrast-enhanced CT scan, which is a CT scan of at least neck, thorax, and abdomen. The reason to do that is to evaluate whether there is any sign of evident disease somewhere, metastasis that have arised in some organs, both in the thorax and in the abdomen. The, the calculation of the sample size is mainly based on the primary endpoint of the study, which is in this case the three years relapse-free survival, and in particular on the statistical hypothesis underlining the trial. In this case, which is the um, threshold, uh, the margin of the confidence interval that is deemed uh, acceptable to demonstrate the non-inferiority of the ctDNA-informed strategy when compared with the ctDNA-uninformed strategy. And uh, in this case, uh, based on the threshold that the authors had chosen, uh, there is the calculation of the sample size, adopting an alpha and beta error. Increasing the alpha and the beta error, this means that you have a higher probability to find a false positive or a false negative result. So in phase three trials, these errors should be really minimized. In phase two, we can use less strict parameters, but still this gives you an idea of which is the probability of finding a falsely negative or a falsely positive result. Wonderful. I guess I have a final short question related to this study. 
Um, I'm curious, uh, I've read that they took plasma specimens at week 4 and week 7 after surgery in order to find circulating tumor DNA. How does one come to a choice uh, of when to harvest uh, um, blood sample to get uh, ctDNA information? Is this variable for different tumors or is this the same for several tumors? I mean, how can one find this except by trial and error? Well, um, actually, this is a very good question. The half-life of circulating tumor DNA is very short, uh, probably in the range of uh, 12 hours. So um, there is uh, no specific need to delay the collection of the sample, but to be sure, at least a couple of weeks following the surgical procedure, I generally waited to be sure that the circulating tumor DNA that was released by cancer cells when they were there meaning before the beginning of, before the surgical procedure, uh, is no, no longer in the blood. And so um, this is the reason to wait uh, some weeks, but not so much time. Then having paired plasma samples, so repeated measures after four and 12 weeks, ensures that actually we are in front of ctDNA negative liquid biopsies. Because having a confirmation after a few weeks is definitely a reason to be sure that we are not denying a potentially curative adjuvant therapy to those patients that are not really ctDNA negative. So it somehow allows increasing the sensitivity of our technique and to be really sure that these patients do not have circulating tumor DNA. Wonderful. So I guess it's time to turn the page to the next clinical trial we'll be happy to discuss today, which is the Coronos clinical trial, which is a small clinical trial for metastatic colorectal cancer. And it showcases another great application of circulating tumor DNA, which is uh, the idea to guide uh, the challenge with a monoclonal antibody uh, by monitoring ctDNA levels. So this monoclonal antibody is called panitinumab, and yeah, that's hard to say. And uh, it's an anti-EGFR monoclonal antibody. Kira, could you introduce for us what the challenge is and uh, what are anti-EGFR monoclonal antibodies? Why are they useful? Why targeting EGFR in colorectal cancer? Thank you. Yes, very good. The, the, the point is that uh, these anti-EGFR agents are commonly used in the treatment of patients not bearing RAS or BRAF mutations. And uh, um, some clinical trials, early clinical trials, showed uh, that uh, patients that had an initial benefit from these drugs and then developed the resistance, after at least one intervening line of therapy, could again benefit from the use of the same drugs. But who are these patients that do actually achieve benefit from reusing the same drug? Are those in whose circulating tumor DNA we are not able to detect the mechanisms of uh, resistance to anti-GFR agents, in particular those that do not bear RAS or BRAF mutations. This is the reason why the Kronos trial was uh, prospectively conceived with the idea of using a liquid biopsy as an interventional tool to select only those patients with no RAS or BRAF mutations to offer them the reuse agents instead of offering this treatment option independently of the molecular characteristics at the time of the reuse of these agents. 
how can we assess Rasenbiraf mutational status in the tumor at this time? Liquid biopsy is clearly much more convenient than performing a new tissue biopsy that, however, would not recap the overall heterogeneity of all the metastatic lesions. So this is the reason why the Kronos trial uses liquid biopsy as an interventional tool to select only those patients with no RAS or BRAF mutations to offer again this targeted option. Wonderful. So to sum up, our challenge means just that you give the same therapeutic agent to patients who already took this agent and the reason to do so in the case of anti-EGFR monoclonal antibodies is that uh, after an initial benefit uh, and an improval in survival with this kind of treatment for metastatic colorectal cancer, um, resistance uh, against these monoclonal antibodies typically, I mean, almost always appears. And this resistance is due to mutations uh, either in EGFR downstream effectors or in EGFR itself. Um, and this is highly heterogeneous among patients. However, it seems that for at least some patients, uh, if one stops monoclonal antibodies for a reasonable amount of time, then this clonal uh, challenge uh, at some point uh, results uh, in a decay in the cancer clones uh, harboring these mutations that confer resistance against anti-GFR monoclonal antibodies. So giving them again to the patient can be therapeutic. And this is a general idea and uh, it can really be boosted to its best thanks to the advances in uh, ctDNA and liquid biopsy monitoring. Uh, so to stratify the population again better than before. Um, so I'm curious to ask uh, how patients were enrolled in this clinical trial, what are the criteria? And something that uh, I'd be happy to discuss with you is also the microsatellite stability of patients. What does this mean? And uh, is this a criterion that was used in this case? Why or why not? These patients uh, were selected according to the criteria I have just mentioned, initial benefit from anti-GFR and then experience the disease progression. So they were not intrinsically resistant, but had acquired the resistance to anti-GFR agents. And they received at least one line of intervening treatment. Why? Because as you mentioned, these uh, mechanisms of acquired resistance, if they appear at the time of disease progression to the anti-GFR treatment, then they exponentially decay over time. So uh, leaving an anti-GFR-free interval of at least four months, which is the half-life of these molecular alterations in blood, is needed to remove the selective pressure that is exerted by the targeted agent because this intervening line of therapy clearly should be anti-GFR-free. And it allows these clones to decay in order to have a ctDNA negative in terms of mutations. So ctDNA wild type that allows the reuse of anti-GFR agents. So these patients were highly pretreated and for sure had already received an anti-GFR agent with benefit and at least one intervening line of anti-GFR free treatment. Uh, the other very important point you are touching Microsatellite instability is a molecular marker that is used in the management of metastatic colorectal cancer patients for the use of uh, checkpoint inhibitors, immunotherapy. Patients that uh, do bear this alteration, which is microsatellite instability, have a very high tumor mutational burden, have highly immunogenic tumors that are very sensitive to this class of drugs that are checkpoint inhibitors that we may use in their treatment. Unfortunately, only the 5% of the 
of metastatic colorectal cancer patients do bear this characteristic of microsatellite instability. To the aim of the Kronos trial, microsatellite instability is not because these patients were probably mainly microsatellite stable, which is the vast majority of metastatic colorectal cancer, but this marker is mostly relevant for trials addressing the use of uh, immunotherapy rather than this kind of targeted agent approach. Yeah, that's inspiring. So what are the steps that uh, you think should be undertaken to walk towards the clinic? Uh, I mean, logistical, technical, and general organizational steps to make this a reality for patients and in the foreseeable future? Probably the application in the metastatic setting to uh, identify mechanisms of acquired resistance and to evaluate whether a treatment option that has already been administered, for example, anti-GFR agents, can be used again in a successful way, such as in the Kronos trial, is uh, the clinical application of a liquid biopsy that is nowadays closer to the daily clinical activity. It's easy because you already somehow know what you are searching for, because you know which are the molecular alterations associated with the um, acquired resistance to anti-GFR agents that you want to identify in circulating tumor DNA. And we have now a lot of evidence that this actually works to select properly our patients. What is currently missing is a randomized trial in a multicentric uh, setting. Uh, to uh, demonstrate that this approach is better than the standard options. In particular, we have nowadays some drugs that are available for all comers, uh, independently of molecular characteristics. Uh, they are called regorafenib, which is a multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitor with anti-angiogenic and immunomodulatory properties. And the trifluoridine pipirastil, which is a, a conventional cytotoxic agent with a novel mechanism of action. And both of these drugs are available and uh, may be used because they demonstrated an overall survival advantage independently of the result of the liquid biopsy. So now we have to demonstrate that in patients with no RASB-RAF or EGFR ectodomain mutations in circulating tumor DNA, choosing the challenge or the retreatment with the anti-GFR is better than using these conventional options. Because in this way, we could justify the usefulness of the liquid biopsy and the analysis of circulating tumor DNA to inform our treatment choice in advanced lines of therapy. This randomized trial is currently ongoing in Italy. It's uh, sponsored by the Gono Foundation again, and I think that will provide some very useful information for the next future. Thank you for making this discussion so well structured. So now I think it's time for a more speculative and, I mean, fantasy question to some point. I'm, obviously, we are trying to make it the most rigorous and scientific as possible, but this is much less based on data, much more based on speculations and what may happen. So please take it as it is. Well, I am a strong believer that in the long run, a simple blood test will be extremely revealing for most aspects of our physiology and of our disease. Biopsies are invasive procedures, whereas a blood test is not. But I mean, could we sample, say, the liver, the kidney or the cerebellum from blood? That sounds pure fantasy, but we may get there, I suppose. I mean, as liquid biopsies that sample cell-free nucleic acids are improving day by day, as you just explained to us especially in the cancer field. 
I'm wondering, will we be able to safely induce the release of cellular content from specific cell types into the blood instead of waiting for cells to release it? Something like, if you can't go to a body district where you want a biopsy, be it in a cancer setting or in another setting, then have a biopsy come to you through blood, induce it somehow. Can we somehow force for now a tumor to release in a regulated and safe manner some of its content for monitoring and diagnostic purposes? And if the answer is yes, or at least partly yes, I mean, in your mind, what technical difficulties do you envision, especially given the complication to find these molecules in the big liquid volume of the blood? Well, I'm not so worried about safety concerns, I mean, about this uh, option, but about the feasibility, because, uh, you know, now we are observing what happens in the blood, uh, which tumors do shed or do not shed circulating tumor DNA. But actually, we do not have any tool to convince the tumor to shed the circulating tumor DNA or other uh, particles, exosomes, RNA into the blood. A huge problem, which is uh, related not to colorectal, but to another solid malignancy, is, uh, for example, in uh, uh, multiform glioblastoma, which is uh, the most malignant uh, tumor in the brain that is protected by the uh, blood uh, encephalum barrier. And in this case, uh, um, circulating tumor DNA is not available in the blood. As a consequence, this tool of liquid biopsy does not apply to this kind of malignancy and they do not foresee in the next future any kind of application except probably for analyzing exosomes, which is something different than the circulating tumor DNA. So I really do not know if we will arrive to force the tumor to release what we need in the blood. I don't, I'm not able to figure out how this may happen. I think that we still need to improve our ability in having sensitive and specific techniques to allow at an easier level and the analysis of qualitative rather than quantitative way of circulating tumor DNA to apply these findings to the daily clinical practice. Wonderful, thank you for explaining. Yeah, I was just speculating and wondering in my mind if some cytomegalovirus or other viruses might be engineered, of course, in an animal model or at least the cellular model to force cells to somehow shed some of its content uh, including exosomes uh, but of course this is very futuristic and Chiara correctly pointed to the need to first optimize current techniques to make the most of what we already have been developing for years in liquid biopsy settings. So Chiara I'd be happy to ask you as a final question where do you see liquid biopsy in five years or in 20 to 30 years from now? What are the trends and the dreams in the liquid biopsy field? I really bet uh, on liquid biopsy in the adjuvant setting uh, for the detection of a minimal residual disease. I do believe that this will be a revolution in the way we treat patients that are already cured by surgery or apparently cured by surgery in order to offer them a real opportunity to be cured thanks to the optimal integration of local regional treatment and, for example, surgery first of all, which is the gold standard and systemic treatments, in particular the adjuvant chemotherapy. And I think we will be ready to do that in, uh, let's say, five to ten years, probably. 
uh, I think that this will work. In the longer run, I mean, in 10 to 15 to probably 20 years, I mean, in a future that is more future, another application that I foresee is in the screening um, topic, because you know that nowadays the adherence to screening procedures is very low, not only because the, of the invasiveness of these procedures, but also because it is not too easy to convince people to be adherent to these protocols. But I think that liquid biopsy may be so easy that if it actually works, it may really allow to detect tumors at a very, very initial stage that's really increasing the opportunity to achieve results in terms of long-term overall survival for these patients. Wonderful. I'm ready to bet you were right. And if podcasts will be still existing, uh, I'm looking forward to interviewing you at that time to see if this really happened and what else uh, could become foreseeable at that point. So thank you so much, Chiara, for spending some time with us today. And I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to discussing with you more and more of the news in liquid biopsy field. Thank you again. Thank you. You've just listened to A Biotech Futurist, a podcast by Luca Fusarbassini. This is the first series and a new episode is out every Monday. Please consider subscribing and rating the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform. And if you liked this episode, consider sharing it with your friends, as the growth of new podcasts relies on word of mouth. If you have any suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram or Gmail at thebiotechfuturistpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the full AI-generated transcript of this episode on my website, lucafuzarabassini.com. I'll also post the links to the main papers referenced in this episode, which you can find here in the description too. Thanks for listening to A Biotech Futurist. I am looking forward to talking with you in a week.